We read God's Word in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 52. Beginning at Matthew 13, verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it becometh a tree. Rather, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which, when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea, And gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore, and sat down, and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth, and sever the wicked from among the just, 
and shall gather them into the furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. Then said he unto them, Therefore every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasures things new and old. This far we read the word of God. We're taught to pray the Lord's Prayer. We are up to the second petition, and therefore to Lord's Day 48 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Which is the second petition? Thy kingdom come. That is, rule us so by thy word and spirit that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee, preserve and increase thy church, destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee, and also all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word till the full perfection of thy kingdom take place, wherein thou shalt be all in all. When we go to school, we study history. The study of history is valuable and beneficial for the child of God. The first place, by studying history, we can learn from the mistakes of the church in the past and be warned against those mistakes. Or, on the other hand, we can see how the church in the past faced issues, controversies, and matters in a wise way, and we can learn positively from them. Also, by studying history, we remember and are taught how we got to where we are today. You can say that it regard world history. The same is true regarding church history. Things that you and I think of today as just simply a part of daily life, were not always. You children learned that when you study history. There weren't always cars. There wasn't always a McDonald's. There wasn't always pizza. There weren't always computers. These things, in fact, are fairly recent developments. How did we get to where we are today? A study of history reminds us, and especially the history of the church, reminds us where we got today doctrinally. Speaking of doctrinally, as we study history, we see things about God. We, we really touched on that last week. That in all of the works of God, His attributes are displayed. And so also in history, we see the power of God, the wisdom of God, the justice of God. And in studying history, church and world, we see our Lord answering this petition. Thy kingdom come. The very word come suggests that there is a process, an ongoing character to the realization of that kingdom, and that process or the observation of that process is the study of history. Coming of that kingdom, our Lord also refers to in some of the parables that we read in Matthew 13. They all speak about the kingdom in one way or another, 
Not each one of them refers narrowly or specifically to the coming of that kingdom, but some of them do. And we'll notice some of them as we go throughout the sermon today. Not giving an in-depth explanation of any of them, but noting how they relate to the coming of the kingdom of God. So, children, in one word, why should you study history? To see that God's kingdom is coming. And sometimes you look at things going on in the world and you say, it doesn't look like God's kingdom is coming to me. But it's a matter of seeing what God is doing and how God's purposes are being fulfilled. And with a view to learning more to appreciate history, I call your attention this afternoon, this morning, to the prayer that our Lord teaches us, taught by Christ in the school of prayer, praying that our Father's kingdom come. Notice first, in church history. Second, throughout world history. And third, at the end of history. There is evidently a relationship between the kingdom of God and the church. And our catechism immediately points us to that when it explains the petition, Thy kingdom come, to say, preserve and increase thy church. In fact, kingdom and church are closely related concepts, and we need to see the relationship between kingdom and church. I will stop short of saying they are one and the same thing to be identified as if they're synonyms, but I will show you how they are related and at the same time how they are distinct. The, really, the question is, what is it that we're praying for when we pray, Thy kingdom come? And the answer is that we're praying about the kingdom of God that is the spiritual realm of God's rule. Spiritual realm, not an earthly realm. A gracious rule in the hearts of men, of his people, not the kind of rule that kings and presidents have over our outward lives only. The kingdom of God is the spiritual realm of his gracious rule in the lives and hearts of his people. A kingdom, first of all, has citizens. And the citizens of this kingdom are every one, man, woman, and child, who has been regenerated, given the life of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Those citizens are some way brought into the kingdom. Some, back in the days of the Roman Empire, were brought in by birth. They were born citizens. Paul was such a one. Others could buy their citizenship in certain circumstances. You and I don't know of that kind of a uh, citizenship in our own experience. We are born in the United States of America and therefore citizens of the United States of America. Likewise, the bringing into the kingdom of God is the work of God in Jesus Christ, delivering us from that other kingdom in which we were by nature, the kingdom of Satan. And God's saying, you're not going to be part of that kingdom anymore, and you don't have dual citizenship in this life, not spiritually, not you're in the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, you're brought out of 
the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the rule of God in this kingdom is a rule by the Holy Spirit. I mentioned earlier that there's a difference between how kings and princes rule and how Jesus Christ rules. Emphasizing that the rule of the Spirit is internal in our hearts. I don't mean to exclude or overlook that that rule is also a governing of our bodies. The Ten Commandments tell us how our bodies are to live in accordance with the will of God. But what the Holy Spirit does in ruling us is change our heart so that we want to obey the law of God and serve Him willingly. This is an efficacious, a powerful, a gracious rule in the hearts of sinners. The king of the kingdom is God. God, as He manifests Himself in Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews and the King of the true kingdom. The Christ who died in order to earn our place in this kingdom, who arose in order to make it possible for us to be in this kingdom. That much about the kingdom, except to say this yet. Obviously, it is a different kind of kingdom than any earthly nation or power. You won't find the kingdom of Christ on a map. That is, it is represented on a map over the length and breadth of the world. But you won't be able to draw a line and say, see, outside this line is not the kingdom of Christ, and inside this line is the kingdom of Christ. The way you can do with any other earthly kingdom. Instead, the kingdom of Christ is spiritual and heavenly, which is to say, its origin is in heaven, and its final culmination is in heaven. Jesus taught this when he said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. And when he said to the Jews, the kingdom of God is within you. Now that's the kingdom. What is God's church? God's church is the body of Jesus Christ, a spiritual body of Jesus Christ, the sum total of all those whom our Lord died and rose to save. So let's speak of common traits of kingdom and church. The citizens of the kingdom are the members of the body of Christ, the members of the church. The king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, is Lord and head of the church. The rule, the spiritual rule of the king in his kingdom is the way he rules in his church. There are elders who rule But their rule also is a spiritual rule, especially they show that by bringing the Word. They don't say in their consistory room, we've got decisions we've got to make. We've got people we've got to rule. What are the latest political fads? What kind of decisions should we make? They go to the Word of God and pray for wisdom and seek the power of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide them as they rule the church. There are common traits between church 
and kingdom that explain why our catechism in explaining the petition, Thy kingdom come, says, preserve and increase thy church. Now, what's the difference? And the answer is this. The church, first of all, has different concepts. They look at what might be the same thing, the body of redeemed, from a different angle. But there's another difference. The different angle, the church is the body of Christ, where every one of us serves. Every one of us plays a function the way the tongue and the way the ears and the way the feet and the kidneys and the liver all serve the well-being of the whole. The church concept emphasizes all the more that you and I have life and we serve one another, whereas the kingdom concept speaks of a structure. And ultimately it reminds us that our service of one another in the body is directed to the service of our Lord Jesus Christ as the head. When we introduce now the kingdom concept to church, then we understand that even in the church there are spheres of authority. Even in heaven, in one way or another, there will be spheres of authority, degrees of authority. Kingdoms have a structure. And our Lord, in saving a body, a church, doesn't just save a bunch of people at random, but puts them both into a body to serve each other and a kingdom to serve Him. Now we're praying that that kingdom come. I could, but don't have time at this point, observe briefly how throughout history the kingdom has been coming. All I'll do now is say that that's the key point when you look at especially Bible history. Your question is, how is God's kingdom coming? How, when God created the world and put Adam and Eve in paradise, how was that God's kingdom? It was. How was sin the entrance of a power of evil and of Satan into the kingdom? It was. How was God's word to Adam and Eve restoring them to fellowship with Him, promising them a Savior, Genesis 3.15, an advance in the coming of the kingdom? It was somehow. How was Israel, when formed as a people of God, an Old Testament nation at Mount Sinai, in advance in the coming of the kingdom of God? These are the questions to ask as we read Old Testament history. When you ask the questions this way, you realize that God's kingdom has been coming. We're not only praying for some future event, but we're understanding that throughout history. God is bringing his kingdom to pass. There's one moment in history, though, as you study the history of the coming of the kingdom that you may not and I may not overlook. And it was that moment when the king of the Jews, who was therefore the son of David, who was therefore the promised Messiah, was nailed to a cross. A moment when the enemy of the kingdom, Satan, said, Now it can't happen. 
We'll refer later to these wicked counsels and plots. There was one of them being brought to light. Now it can't happen. Now God's kingdom can never come. Now God's church will never be realized. And yet God said, oh no. This is how it happens. That king is going to die for the sins of his people. I want you to see from that, beloved, what a glorious king we have. There are many kings who weren't of a mind ever to die for their people. What good would they do as a king if they died? The real glory they have as king, they think, is living long and and serving a people for their own advantage. That wasn't Jesus Christ, our king. Gave himself to the death of the cross. He bore the wrath of God to lay the foundation and basis for sinners to be in the kingdom of God. And then he rose again. And Satan, who three days earlier had said, Now it can never happen, sees. Not only can it happen, but now it's sure. Heaven will come in all its fullness. The Lord and Savior died and rose. All right, let's come now to the catechism as we ask the question, but what does this have to do then with our petitions before God? And the first two points our catechism makes we can bring in here. We are praying that the kingdom of God come in and through the history of the church. I'll start with the second one then, Preserve and increase thy church. Some of the parables that Jesus spoke bore on the matter of the increase, the growth of the church. There was the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of leaven, verses 31 through 33. In both of them, the Lord taught that the kingdom of heaven is like, or he was saying the growth of the kingdom of heaven is, can be compared to, on the one hand, to a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, but when planted, becomes the greatest of herbs, not the greatest of trees. It's not a maple tree, it's not an oak tree, it's not a birch tree. It is yet an herb. It's a spice or an herb, something that rises a number of feet off the ground, and a mustard seed can, be, can become a very large herb so that the birds of the air lodge in its branches. How large a small thing has become. Likewise, the kingdom of God grows from being Adam and Eve to being the countless throng that will one day be in heaven. The parable of the leaven also speaks of the growth of the kingdom, not the external outward growth now, but the internal growth. You put a little leaven, a yeast, into a loaf of bread that you're baking, and you can't see the yeast, but it makes the whole loaf rise. Internally, there's growth. And this is what we're asking and seeking when we pray, preserve and increase thy church. Made up of sinners, opposed by a common enemy, the church's very existence 
humanly speaking, is always at stake. Divinely speaking, never. We bring to God a petition that he preserve, and then we turn around and confess the preservation of the saints. We know he will, but we see the attacks and the danger and how Satan is constantly attacking and how our own sinful nature is continually working not to build up and edify, but to destroy the church. So preserve and increase. May she grow. We're praying for the birth of of covenant children. We're praying for the spiritual growth of covenant children. We're praying for missionaries, Protestant Reformed, as well as missionaries who bring the true gospel anywhere, who go throughout the world and preach that gospel unto the converting of unbelievers and heathen. We're praying then that once converted, they not just say, well, I wasn't a Christian, now I am a Christian, and that's all there is to it. But they, they and we grow more and more in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for the work of evangelism in our own congregation, and that it might bear fruit unto the saving of God's people. Preserve and increase thy church. Are you praying that? Is it part of your family prayers and your individual prayers and our congregational prayers? The first part of the catechism, which is a second way now in which I'll relate the coming of the kingdom to the history of the church The first answer of the catechism is, Rule us so by thy word and spirit that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee. Which is to say, church out there preserve and increase, but now the kingdom of God is within you. And as every one of us recognize the wonder work of the grace of God in us, our prayer is, May we submit ourselves more and more to Thee. Understand again the need for that. Every one of us who battles against sin understands the need for this aspect of the petition. I have an old man in me. That old man loves sin. Great that the kingdom comes. Great that I hear I'm in it. Can I now go on in sin? And one day say, but then I'll be in heaven later. And the answer is, it's not how it works. Kingdom of heaven isn't just something you'll be in someday, it's something you're in now. And when you and I are brought into a kingdom, the king comes and judges us now in time. And he says to us, you're not doing my will. And I recognize that I'm prone to that, and you are prone to that. We have an old man that would be a traitor, that would commit treasonous acts against our Lord and King and Savior, and we see the horror of it. Rule me by thy word and spirit, that I may submit. There you have, in one word, The relationship of the citizens to the king. Submit. 
isn't a word now that I'm just speaking to wives. In fact, the very reason the word comes to wives in different places of Scripture is because wives too are part of the body and marriage a picture of the body. But the word I'm bringing now is to the church of Jesus Christ, Submit. And the world says, don't submit. And my old man says, don't submit. That's giving up some of your independence, some of your, your, own, your own individuality. But if I don't submit to Jesus Christ, my King, I'm an unfaithful servant. And there are parables too. What the king does to those in the church who are unfaithful servants at the end of time, and he destroys them as he does the tares that the enemy sowed. And so I need grace to submit. To submit is willingly to yield myself to my Savior, to understand that he knows what's best for me, it's not just that he knows how best to bring about his kingdom in its final perfection. He knows what's best for me. He knows what will give me true happiness. And now I, as a husband and a father and a professor, and you, in all of your circumstances of life, say, I am praying for grace as I serve to submit. Let God's word lead and guide, not what I want. And the young person prays this from his or her heart. She's saying, Preserve me sexually in holiness. That's part of submitting. And the young person and the old person prays this. He and she says, Keep me from any substances, alcohol or otherwise, that would lead me astray, that are themselves a being led astray. Give me to seek thee. When a husband prays this, he says, as the head of my home, it isn't just about getting what I want and telling my kids, do it or else. It's about showing that I serve Jesus Christ and have my wife's and my children's good, spiritual good, in mind. Do you pray? Thy kingdom come? That's not just the question I want to put to you, because we all pray the Lord's Prayer from, from time to time. Do you pray? Rule me by thy word and spirit. I may submit myself more and more to thee. That is the kingdom coming in church history. Then secondly, it comes throughout world history. And I've laid the basis for making this point by saying already that the kingdom began really in the Garden of Eden and in the moment of creation. The point isn't that the kingdoms of this world become more and more Christian. When I say it comes throughout world history, that's not the point I'm making. That's a wrong approach to understanding this petition. One of two, broadly speaking, wrong approaches. 
the approach of post-millennialism. To say thy kingdom come means that the nations will become more and more influenced by Christianity, the justice system, the legal system. You don't see that happening, do you, in our day and age? You don't see politicians in our land more and more saying, we need to do what the Bible would require of us. You see men and women seeking themselves. So we don't mean thy kingdom come in the post-millennial sense, nor in the pre-millennial sense. That one day, although things aren't going well now, that one day Jesus Christ will come back from heaven and he'll go reign in Jerusalem. And at that point, all, at least Jews, and many converted Gentiles will say, I'm going to go live in Jerusalem if I can, and if I can't live over there in Israel, then I'm going to acknowledge, there's my king, the kingdom has just come. No, the kingdom of of God comes throughout world history, not by having its fulfillment on earth, but by God governing every event of history with a view to bringing heaven to pass. Heard of a terrible earthquake this week? 25,000 plus dead? God said, My kingdom is coming. Hear of a war in Ukraine? It caught our attention at first, but it's almost a year old now. So maybe it doesn't get our attention like it used to. But still, it's God saying to us, my kingdom is coming. That is, why is there a world of ungodly unbelievers if God's purpose all along is to save some into his kingdom? Why not just get it over with? And his answer in a nutshell is, Well, first of all, of course, all those elect must be born and reborn in Christ. But also, this is a process. It takes a while. You see one of the parables, you're probably thinking of it already, that's making this very point. The parable of the tares in the field. It was the question of the disciples or rather of the servants of the householder in the parable, shouldn't we go pull up those tares right now? Let's just be left with just the wheat, because that's what we want out of the field. Let's get rid of everything that would hinder, and then we can have our wheat field. And the answer of the homeowner is, no, no, no. You might destroy the wheat with them. You don't know who are elect and who are reprobate. Let both grow together until the harvest And in the time of the harvest, that's when the tares are able to be distinguished from the wheat. They look similar. Until the wheat puts out its grainy head and is ready for harvesting. And so, wait until the harvest, and then we'll burn the tares. There must be a process, and the process must be brought to its very end. With that in mind, our Heidelberg Catechism teaches us to pray. Destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee 
and also all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word. The history of the world from day one has been the history of Satan working to destroy the kingdom of God. And to that end, he has devised many wicked counsels and devices. He has at his disposal also many fallen devils, devils, fallen angels, and also every unregenerate unbeliever, and also my and your old man of sin, and all get involved in the process of thinking, what can we do to attack, to destroy if possible, to prevent the kingdom of God from growing? There are so many such plots. It's a reason why there's persecution. The plot is to destroy the church. It's a reason why Satan uses, in our day and age, instead of persecution, the wealth of the world. You want that, don't you, young people? It's a plot to destroy the church. It's a reason why Satan works in your co-workers or neighbors to get you to say, you're silly. You're silly for being such a small minority of people who do such strange things. Come and be more like us. Be like the rest of us. It's a plot of Satan to destroy the church. It's a reason why Satan comes and says through different men, false prophets, doctrine. You put so much emphasis on doctrine, it doesn't really matter. And then they don't say what matters is a living of a godly life. Even we aren't going to say doctrine doesn't matter, but what matters is a godly life. They both matter. But these people, these false prophets say, doctrine doesn't matter, and neither does the living of a godly life. It's a plot of Satan to destroy the church And our prayer to God is, destroy those who plot to destroy thy kingdom. Then you read in the news of a kingdom falling. And you maybe say, I don't know much about that kingdom. It just got destroyed by another nation. But in some way, God's kingdom is coming. And then you hear of the untimely death of some rock star or pop culture star. And you say, in some way, the Lord put an end to an ungodly counsel. The point I'm making is to view everything that happens in time and history as necessary to the coming of God's kingdom. That raises questions. Coming of Antichrist, the prevalence of sin, the increase and growth of sin, we think to ourselves, these hinder. We think to ourselves, maybe God isn't doing a very good job of causing his kingdom to come. Look at all of the things that oppose that kingdom. But here again is the answer of our Lord. Let the tares grow. Leave them until the harvest. There's an end to all of this. And in that day, you'll see 
how the Lord has really been bringing his kingdom to pass. So do you look at world history, hear about it on the news, and then throw up your hands in disgust? Or do you hear about it on the news and praise Jehovah who's in control? Finally, that kingdom will come at the end of history. The full realization of God's kingdom is in heaven. And the Catechism refers to that when it says, Till the full perfection of thy kingdom take place, wherein thou shalt be all in all. When Jesus Christ returns, when he has judged everyone, his citizens, as well as those who aren't. When he's declared his citizens to be sinners themselves unworthy of the kingdom, but having a right to it on the basis of his shed blood, and brings them in. And when he judges those who have hated him their whole life, and are not regenerated to be worthy of eternal hell, and sends them there, then we won't pray this prayer anymore it will have been fully answered. The question is, why does the Catechism speak of that day as the full realization of the kingdom? Number one, because in that day God will be all in all. And that's not just the Catechism, that's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. God will be all things in all men. Or another way of saying he will be acknowledged to be glorious and supreme. In that day, there will be none who deny there is a God, a kingdom, Jesus Christ who died to establish the kingdom, and that Jesus Christ still lives. In that day, all will acknowledge, not all out of a heart of love, but all out of the understanding that they have seen that God in Jesus Christ face to face and been judged by him, and they will acknowledge he is the glorious, the great, the supreme being. Secondly, that will be the full perfection, because in that day all opposition to the kingdom of God will be fully destroyed. Satan, who rages now, and those wicked counsels that are being developed one after another, will be gone for good. Not only is that the parable of the tares of the field, but also the parable of the net. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was cast into the sea, gathered of every kind of fish. And at the end, when the net was brought in, the fishermen threw out those fish they would not keep. So shall it be at the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. In the third place, that will be the full perfection of God's kingdom because of what it will involve as regards your and my salvation. We will be made perfect. We will be made so that we do submit ourselves to Christ perfectly. This is how Jesus says it in verse 43. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom 
of their father. And we will be given a place in that kingdom and in the church as it's glorified that is far more glorious than any place we can imagine now. That will be the end of the world. The prayer, Thy kingdom come, has that day in mind. We have not lost hope. We have not grown weak in faith. We understand that in all the trials and tribulations that we see in world history, in church history, and in our own personal history, the Lord is aiming at a future event. And so this affects our prayer as regards its content. We're going to look ahead, young people. One thing the society we live in today doesn't want us to do is look ahead. It tells us lies about the future, politicians and others do, to try to get us to think the future will be just fine, so we don't have to look ahead. And it says, let's focus on the present. All's fine today. The child of God who says all is not fine today, looks ahead. A day is coming. The day when God's glory will be displayed in all its fullness. This part of the Heidelberg Catechism affects not only what we pray for, but also how we pray. We must be, even now, heavenly-minded. And so many times in the epistles, the calling comes to citizens of the kingdom of God, not to be like the, kingdoms, uh, the citizens of the kingdoms of this world. Seek the kingdom of God now. I said last week, at one point in the sermon, don't overlook the pronoun thy. And that's the point I have to make again. My kingdom come is not the prayer our Lord teaches us to pray, but thy. Are you praying this prayer in love for your Lord, Savior, and King himself? And as you pray this prayer, do you seek to grow in your own hatred of sin and of all that opposes God? But then in the third place, the certainty of the coming of a full perfection of the kingdom enables us to pray this prayer in confidence. Rule me so by thy word and spirit. And he says, I will. Preserve and increase thy church. And he says, I am. Destroy the works of the devil and all those counsels. And he says, I know every single one of them. And I'm going to let them go a while. I'm going to let them go a while. I've got a purpose in them too. Satan and his hosts, they think they are sovereign and all is going according to their plan, but I'm laughing in heaven. I know how it's going to go. I'm going to let them go a while, but I will destroy. And until the full perfection of thy kingdom take place, and he says it's going to. We are confident. Why? Because he is king. 
There's none higher, none more powerful, none greater than our God and Jesus Christ our Lord, whose death on the cross was not an experiment to see if he could establish a kingdom, and whose resurrection the third day not an attempt to see if he could overpower Satan and all his wiles, but whose death said, I have established that kingdom, and whose resurrection declared, I am more powerful than every enemy who opposes me. Beloved, this is our king. Do you love him? Serve him from the depth of your being, soul, heart, mind, and strength. And live in hope. His kingdom is coming. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, keep us from forgetting that everything that happens in time and history in the church, in the world, and in our own hearts and lives, serves thy good purpose of gathering thy church and preparing the wicked for destruction. For Christ's sake, amen.